0: Marine Stewards Network at tribalmsn.org. Coast Range Association is at coastrange.org. We'll be back in a couple weeks with a great episode on the promise and potential of sustainable and regenerative aquaculture here in Oregon. Thank you so much for listening to Coast Range Radio. KBO KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM and streaming on the web at KBOO.FM KBOO's end of year drive is happening right now We invite you to become a member today by going to KBOO.FM slash give Or by texting KBOO to the number 44321 Contribute now and help us meet our $70,000 goal by the end of the year Now is the perfect time to contribute because a generous group of
1: donors will match your gift one-to-one up to $10,000. Join the KBOO family today at kboo.fm slash give. Tune in to KBOO tonight at 8 o'clock for Squirrel Snow the one show where we broadcast galactic awareness and animal awareness where sometimes we have fascinating conversations with experts, authors, activists in the fields of animal awareness and galactic awareness and a lot of the time we play amazing music that could effectively raise your frequency of consciousness yes, that is Squirrel
0: Snow tonight at 8 o'clock here on your community radio station, KBOO, Portland. Hi, this is Walt Perizzetta with the Group of Chicago, and you're listening to KBOO FM. The more compassion we have towards animals, the more compassion
1: we're going to have towards other people. If you can value them all, you, you really value yourself as well.
0: So even if you don't care about animals, the, the things we do that hurt animals end up hurting ourselves. It's almost kind of a dominion type issue where we feel we need to control everything dominion means stewardship to take care of what would a cow think about satisfying our habit the challenge lies with looking at suffering from the perspective of the person or individual suffering Welcome to Voices for the Animals with your host Courtney Scott. We are delighted to introduce Debbie Ethel, founder and executive director of the Coda Foundation for Elephants. Debbie is one of the featured speakers at the International Free the Elephants Conference and Film Festival in Portland coming up in April. She brings her years of experience studying wild African herds in Kenya to the conference and we are honored to have her here with us in the studio today. Welcome, Debbie. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Tell us about the CODA Foundation for Elephants. Why did you start it? What is its mission? And where did the name come from? Well,
1: first of all, CODA stands for Keepers of the Ark, because, first of all, that's what I believe we all are. We have the power to let elephants go extinct, or we have the power to save them, but at the end of the day, that decision lies with us. And secondly, when I was in college, I read a book called Keepers of the Ark, written by Ray Ryan, who's also going to be one of the featured speakers at the conference, and it just moved me greatly. So the name is borrowed from both of those concepts.
0: Great. And so what's the mission, then, of CODA Foundation for
1: Elephants? So our mission is basically to teach about all things African elephant. And we do that in a variety of mediums, from uh, our website, for example, which is sort of divided into two parts one is elephant science and the other part is elephant stories we also have projects where we go into schools and we teach we have a YouTube video project getting ready to start getting ready to launch and we have a a project on the ground in Kenya as well so we've got several short-term focus projects and long-term focus projects
0: okay and then you mentioned something about some projects you started in school
1: Mm -hmm. tell us about that Debbie Well, to go back, when I started back on my journey through school, I was 34 years old and I had a fifth grade math education, which I learned is never, ever a good starting spot for any scientist. So um, along the way, when I was in elementary school, I got left behind in math, even though I always felt like I had a mind for science. I always wanted to take science classes, but you have to take so much math before you can get into any science classes. So therefore, I I was never allowed to take any science. When I got my degree, I wondered, how many baby scientists are we, in fact, missing? So this project became very personal to me. And when I approached schools, you know, Oregon is ranked 44th in the nation for math and science, so we're very, very low schools had no uh, tolerance you know they we couldn't go in there and just teach about elephants because they need to teach all the important subjects so what we decided to do was to teach scientific concepts using elephants as the vehicle to teach such as infrasonic communication that's how elephants communicate between one another it's also a concept that that children need to learn in schools. The difference between infrasound, for example, and ultrasound. So, you know, it was very successful. But I will say that when we began this, it was definitely um, a big, a much bigger project that we had in mind. But we realized fairly quickly that what we're up against, if elephants are being poached and continue to be poached at the same rate that they are, there will likely not be very many, if any, wild elephants left by the time some of these kids graduate from high school. So we needed to re-strategize and get more short-term and long-term goals in place to try to you know, combat the situation as much as we possibly could. So we kind of diversified ourselves, and, and that's why we, we're also located in Kenya as well.
0: Wow, that's really exciting that you're doing that. I love that you're involving children, Mm because they are the ones who are inheriting this earth. Yes. So um, what what made you decide to focus on elephants?
1: You know, there was never really any other choice for me. Um, I started following uh, a group of elephants when I was eight years old. And though it was just a hobby for many, many years, I just followed the elephants that the David Sheldrick Wildlife Trust was rescuing. I began tracking their entire life histories and sort of building a mini database. And what started out as just a few elephants when I was eight years old blossomed into more than four hundred. And and so, um, you know, even though I'm an animal lover and I love all animals, I wish I could just, you know, (laughs) you know, work with them all. Elephants have always captured my heart since I was a young child. So there just wasn't any other choice for me
0: yeah i i totally concur on that one they're very very (laughs) special beings so your website has some many amazing scientific Mm -hmm. facts about elephants how they can hear through their feet which i think you mentioned about the infrasonic sound and that for many many miles for instance Mm -hmm. so tell us what you find maybe one or two one of the most interesting facts about elephants
1: well, I love the science of elephants, and I also love their individual stories, which we do tell some of those on on our site. I would say, for me, one of the most disturbing things or one of the things that keeps me up at night is this uh, this awareness that elephants seem to have, that they're being hunted for their ivory. It's very It's a very strange thing that that all the researchers that I work with and that I talk to are also witnessing. I received an incredible email from Derek Joubert of uh, Derek and Beverly Joubert. These incredible African conservationists. He had one of the most remarkable stories about this as well. That the elephants that they're studying seem to have a very keen awareness that the ivory is what is what they're being hunted for. Um, they also did in a phenomenal film called Eye of the Elephant, and there is a story in there uh, about this as well. It's it's incredible. So that's probably one of the most disturbing things is the behavior that we're seeing that elephants are doing that suggests that they clearly know why why they're being hunted.
0: Yeah, so that leads me to another story on your website about an elephant who entered a crowd of guests and found something go ahead tell us about that oh
1: that's such a good story simon trevor is an african conservationist who studied elephants his whole life he lives in savo east national park in kenya and he has a he had some guests over that were sitting on a back deck often the distance is a waterhole where wild elephants will will come in the evening And one day, he was out on the back deck with some guests, and one of the elephants just peeled off from the group and began walking straight towards his back deck. So he told his guests just to remain calm, just, you know, don't move, the elephant will let you know what she wants. And she came over to the deck and gently stepped up on the back deck and wound her trunk through this crowd of people to this one woman standing all the way in the very back and wrapped her trunk around this woman's wrist. Very gently, she extricated herself and and left the deck, stood a few feet away and rumbled long and deep. And when everyone looked back at the woman who was completely shocked, she had a wrist full of bracelets and one of those bracelets was in fact ivory. And it was the only piece of ivory on that back deck. So did that elephant, was it aware that that bracelet was ivory? I mean, we don't know. I think what's really fascinating is, you know, most of the, of the science that we know about elephants has been discovered in the last 50, 60 years, but the majority of this science has only come out in the last 20, 25. So that's not very much time. So when we see stories, and I've, I've heard so many stories like that elephant wrapping the, the trunk around that woman's wrist, seeming to understand that that is ivory. It's the only ivory on that deck. Um, we just don't know. And, and so that's the thing that really kind of, you know, also keeps me up at night is just how little we know about this incredible species. If, if so much of what we learned about them, we've only learned in the past two decades.
0: Yeah, that's incredible.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, you know, you mentioned this. It's kind of they have a mystique
1: because mm-hmm. you
0: don't really understand. But they seem to have, I mean, from the story about Lawrence Anthony, which I also want you to share, mm-hmm. an uncanny ability to perceive reality even though it's not
1: right in front of them. Yes, absolutely. So so tell us about Lawrence Anthony then. Lawrence Anthony was another great conservationist. Um, He died a few years ago. He wrote a book called The Elephant Whisperer that is a brilliant book about how he came to um, acquire a herd of elephants. Once he got this herd of elephants he realized fairly early on and the story is told in the book that he wanted to leave them alone. He wanted to let them just be in the wild. And so he did for many, many years. He died suddenly of a heart attack. And by the time that he died, he had acquired an, a second herd of elephants. So there was two herds of elephants out on this massive piece of property that he owned. And there's a lodge there. So as the guests were coming to his funeral um, that was being held at the lodge, one of his sons noticed that the herds of elephants began moving, the, One one herd was at least 12 miles away. The day before they had the funeral, that herd began making its way back to the lodge no one really thought too much about it until they were at the funeral and they realized that both herds of elephants had come from the farthest you know areas of this preserve to basically come to his funeral and they stood on the outer edges of where all the people were and just stayed there for the length of the funeral and then they left so again you know it elephants have this unbelievable keen awareness of death they know the difference between life and death. and we we don't know that all mammals know that. You know, it's a very unique quality that humans have, of course. Um, but elephants also have this very sort of sophisticated ritual around death. One of the, I believe, maybe the only mammal that does. So it's 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 pretty extraordinary.
0: Yeah, but I would say with humans, the only ones that actually could discern that someone's dead they haven't seen for two <laughs> years is they would be psychic, right? <laughs> well, or I mean, clairvoyant or something.
1: You know, again, it just shows just how little we know and how little we understand about their behavior. So that is a possibility. I mean, we don't, you know, we just, we don't know what we don't know yet. And I just hope that we have enough time to figure out as much as we can about the species before they're gone.
0: Yes. And I hope we figure out a way to keep them as wild and free as possible. Mm -hmm, Me too. So they don't suffer what Gabe Bradshaw calls psychological extinction. Yes. Which you talk about that in the wild and also happens to them in captivity. Mm -hmm. They're just too, too smart to be cooped up like that for their whole lives yeah so anyway um i don't think i think most people would be surprised to learn that the u.s is one of the biggest importers of ivory Mm -hmm. legal and illegal and you mentioned in your website blog there's an attitude of complicity about
1: that explain that for our audience so first I'll explain the difference between legal and illegal ivory. 1990, any elephant uh, that had its ivory harvested, basically any elephant killed prior to 1990, is considered that ivory is considered legal. Now that needs to also come with what's called a pre-banned certificate, or a certificate of analysis, basically saying it's authentic, this, this animal was killed before 1990. Any elephant killed after 1990, any ivory harvested from an elephant after that time, is considered illegal ivory. And that's according to CITES, otherwise known as the Convention of International Trade of Endangered Species. Recently, I did a talk, and at this talk, a woman came up to me afterwards and and expressed, you know, how devastated she was to learn more about the poaching crisis. But at the very the very next sentence, she talked about how she was um, saving up for two years to go to Malaysia to buy this very expensive marjan, this ivory marjan set. My point about the complicity is. You know, well, I also need to say this too. Ivory, you have ivory in antique stores, right? It's old ivory. That's what we think. But what we're discovering is that we have so much brand new ivory in antique stores, basically illegal ivory mixed in with the legal ivory. Because what I want people to understand is that we cannot tell the difference any longer between legal and illegal ivory. So this kind of leads into the complicity piece uh... the only way to tell anymore is a very expensive chemical test so most people are not going to go do that and i don't know of any public labs that actually do that anywhere in oregon other than forensic labs so once you have that knowledge, once you know that we can't tell the difference between legal and illegal ivory and you want to put your ivory back into the market because you still want to sell your you know, grandmother's ivory necklace, that's where the complicity comes in. Because you can't have it both ways. You can't care so deeply about poaching but then want to put the ivory back into a market in which we can't tell the difference between the two. So this is one of the reasons why we're seeing a lot of uh, ivory dealer, uh, antique dealers, auctioneers, estate sale houses, um, you know, getting brought up on charges for selling you know brand new ivory, illegal ivory. So you know this is a a thing I come up against all the time when I do my you know talks and presentations is trying to educate people about why we're in the mess that we're in and what you can do to stop it and until we actually can tell the difference between these two in the market where we have a legal market running parallel with an illegal market and we can't tell the difference between the two then we need to stop the market. So.
0: And I would say we need to stop it anyway, because Mm -hmm. even if you prove that it was antique, it still comes from a living being who died in a horrible way. And you wouldn't want a trophy from a child who was killed. So why would you want a trophy from an elephant, whether it's old or or young or new? So anyway, um, right now, you're listening to Voices for the Animals. With me is Debbie Ethel, founder and executive director of the CODA Foundation for Elephants. So Debbie, one of the ways you mentioned people can help stop the Holocaust of wild elephants is to purchase products made by the people of Kenya. So tell
1: us more about that. How does that help to save elephants? Well, this speaks to a short-term and a long-term project of ours. And I need to preface this with just saying, we are copying examples that have already worked brilliantly in other organizations. So we're not inventing the wheel here at all. We, we have a project called the Elephant Angel Project. Now, we identify areas in Kenya that have really high rates of poaching. These areas uh, don't have, you know, these villages don't have any other way of making their ends meet. So they rely on poaching, of course. You have somebody coming in and saying, I'm going to pay you so much money to go kill an elephant. That's more money than some of these people can make in a year, and it feeds their families. But other projects i have worked like a project in Zambia, for example, where the Owens Foundation for Conservation Wildlife came in, noticed that all of the villages were poaching an extraordinary amount. They found no elephants where there should have been many. And they introduced beekeeping to this area. They taught these villages how to harvest the beeswax and the honey, and they began selling it on mail order. This project proliferated into all their surrounding communities. And to this day, has the largest population of elephants in Zambia. Because an elephant, if you kill an elephant for its tusks, and say it has you know, fairly large tusks, you might get $100,000 for that elephant. Now, that's the kingpins. That's not the guy who poaches the elephant. The guy who poaches the elephant may get a couple hundred dollars. So it's not an enormous amount of money that the guy who kills the elephant actually gets. However, if you let that elephant live throughout its natural life, that elephant will generate more than two million dollars of tourist income two million u.s. dollars in an incredibly poor country so that's way more money than two million dollars you know here in the u.s. so that's the long-term piece so what we do is we go into these areas uh, we found incredible artisans in these areas and they're making incredible, you know, beautiful elephant sculptures out of recycled pop cans and oil drums and they're creating these angels that that we will sell on our site. Uh, we're going to be putting this up on our site as an e-commerce site. So when people want to, you know, help out, they can purchase these products and know that that money is going right back into this community to try and divert them from poaching as we teach science, as much science as we can teach to them as well. And then it allows them uh, to rely on tourism as we can get the elephants to come back in the area, just like these these organizations in Zambia. So right now, we're only $9,000 away from our goal, uh, our fundraising goal, uh, to meet this, this uh, project. But shortly, we should be able to have this up on our site. And then, you know, in a very simple way, people can help with that.
0: That's great. So you're talking about elephant tourism then, like safaris, yes. elephant photo safaris, and so forth. Absolutely, right. And also staying at those lodges, I guess. And yes, yeah. Right. You know,
1: there's a couple of incredible, successful. The Ilangwezi Lodge is a is a, a lodge run by the Maasai community, and uh, a gentleman came in and bought all the cattle from these Maasai uh, cattle herders, uh, Ian Craig, actually of Lewa. Uh, Rhino Conservancy. He came in and started purchasing the cattle from the Maasai and they built a lodge. They built this beautiful lodge. The money that they make in the lodge doesn't just go to that Maasai man's village. It goes to all of the Maasai in the area. This is a, a beautiful, absolutely stunning safari, stunning lodge to stay in. They are so successful that they're building another lodge. Maasai keep approaching him to buy off his cattle so that they can participate in this as well. So Again, there are so many wonderful projects that are working, and that's what we really like to focus on: are, are the things that are working, and then try to copy them as much as we can. And I try to educate people here as much as we can before they travel, you know, to Kenya, so that you stay in sustainable, you know, lodges in safaris that aren't turning around right after you leave to become a hunting farm and kill off all the animals, which is a, you know a common thing in some areas. So, mm. yeah.
0: So, um, you're going to be discussing the cost of conservation at the conference. I understand. Tell us a little more about that.
1: so the u s. dollar goes so incredibly far in a poor country like Kenya. And that's something that that I, I try to, you know, educate people about as much as I can. In the United States, we've spent about, you know, upwards of a billion dollars renovating zoo exhibits for elephants. So that's not all the elephants in the United States. We have, you know, maybe 450, maybe more, a few more than 450 elephants in the United States. So this is for about 100 elephants that we've renovated their, you know, zoo exhibits. And this tells me that people in the United States are incredibly passionate about elephants and their welfare, and I think that's a wonderful sign. But I want you to look at this figure. And the Kenya Wildlife Service, which is a group of rangers about 300 rangers, they manage the 23 national parks in Kenya, which are some of the largest wildlife safaris in the world in all of Africa. The largest wildlife safaris, you know, some of them are in Kenya. They manage the, fin- the remaining 30,000 elephants, and it only costs 70,000 U.S. dollars per year to run those 300 rangers. Now that also includes three meals a day and their uniforms. So when you do a comparison of the one billion dollars to the seventy thousand. It just doesn't add up. And so this is why you know I, I really encourage people to point your feet in the right direction and get money in the hands of people that are trying to protect the remaining wild elephants. because you know what could they do if they had a million dollars, which is such a tiny drop in the bucket compared to the billion that we've spent renovating zoo exhibits. Again, I think it's it's a wonderful thing that we're doing that, but we just don't have time. So we really need to to you know uh, put our efforts in these groups. Uh, such as Save the Elephants, Ian Douglas Hamilton's group Big Life, and also the David Sheldrick Wildlife Trust. All of these groups hire Kenya Wildlife Service rangers, and so we partner with them as well. And so we uh, we give all of our reserves to these groups too, because we know where the dollar needs to go and where it can go the farthest, the farthest over there.
0: Yeah, I was at a pause conference a few years ago, and Dr. Keith Lindsay mm-hmm. said that one zoo exhibit the cost for one elephant exhibit as zoo would fund a wildlife refuge in Africa forever it's so true and is this quite is something a, quite an amazing statistic when you think about that
1: it, it really is and so that's why you know I spend a lot of time I do a ton of public speaking and and I have 22 different talks right now although I'll probably have more um coming up because I do I I, I, I uh, format my talks based on the subject that people want to learn about. So, you know, this one we're going to be talking about the cost of conservation and just really how far the U.S. dollar goes. And if we get it in into the right hands, you know, you can't donate directly to the Kenya Wildlife Service. They're still dealing with a lot of corruption over there. But you can donate to other organizations Uh, that you can actually check their tax returns. In the United States, they have U.S. based 501c3s. So, you know, those are the ones that we support as well.
0: Okay. So I think a lot of people still believe, because the zoos will say this, that keeping animals in zoos helps to conserve the species. Do you think there's any validity to that
1: uh, no. <laughs> I don't, I, not, I can't say every single zoo. I can't speak for every single zoo. But what, you know, when we think of conserving the species, I think of the condor project that was going on here at the Oregon Zoo. You know, uh, condors were going completely extinct. So groups of scientists went out and grabbed baby chicks a- a- out of nests, literally, and began raising them at the zoo to re release them all back into the wild. That's what I consider a conservation project. Uh, we didn't grab these condors and just ship them out to all these other zoos so that people could see condors. Although, you know, it's amazing. But, you know, when the babies were there, you could go down and see the babies as they were growing. And I do like that as far as an educational piece of of uh, captivity. But these birds were all, you know, all uh, released back into the wild. So if we were going over to Africa and grabbing elephants, which we had three zoos just do this, you know, two years ago, that went over and actually captured wild elephants that had a sanctuary that they could go to 12 miles away from where they were captured. They were then hauled over to the United States. And the reason was, was because, well, poaching is so severe over there. What I I talk to people all the time about is just how large the continent of Africa is. You can fit three United States, plus a little bit of, India plus some of China inside the continent of Africa. So that gives you an idea of just how massive that, you know, that continent is. So just because poaching is really bad in one area, it does not mean it's just, it's absolutely horrible in another. They might have hot spots for poaching and other safe zones where there's not as much poaching. Botswana, for example, is experiencing very little, you know, poaching. It's a very safe, place for elephants which is why so many have congregated down there they now have they took the spot away from kenya they now have the largest population of elephants in africa so you know if if we were if our model was to put elephants in captivity raise them up and and try to get them back into a wildlife preserve or get them into preserves here in the united states that are much larger then you know that would be in my opinion
0: has that ever happened
1: well, when elephants are are taken to groups like paws, you know, when they're when they're relinquished over to a sanctuary where they have much more autonomy, their ability for free will, they can make their own decisions. I mean, we are just I mean, just last Sunday actually on CBS this morning, Dr. Caitlin O'Connell Rodwell, who discovered that elephants are, in fact, hearing through their feet, which is an enormous uh, you know, an incredible discovery. She was studying how you measure the intelligence of animals, and they did this incredible segment on CBS this morning about her. So, um, you know, there's a lot of projects that are going on. There's, you know, um, with wild elephants to try to keep them wild. So, um, yeah.
0: Yeah. So, but... We we don't have time, unfortunately. That's a very big subject, but we'll, we're going to get more into that into our conference. So we'll just uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Anyway, right now, just so you know, next week, Dab is going to be interviewing uh, Professor Steve Wise. So you Great. also work with uh, Professor Wise with the Non-Human Rights Project. So tell us about
1: that um, sure. a little bit. Yeah, so I got hired on um, by them about two years ago as a consultant. Um my role in the pro first of all, the Non Human Rights Project, one of the I, I feel like we're watching history being made in real time. It's a it's a phenomenal project. So anybody that doesn't isn't familiar with them, go to their website, NonhumanRightsProject.org. Mm-hmm. Um, what they're doing is they're fighting for non uh, they're fighting for uh, personhood rights for animals. This is different, though, and it's important that people know this. It's not human rights for elephants. they're They're doing a few different animals, and I'm focused on the elephant the elephant piece. But this is non uh, this is personhood rights of which Citizens United, for example, already gives these rights to corporations. Uh, you know, personhood rights are already given to things like a yacht. Uh, so yeah, I think an elephant th- should be at least as equal as a yacht. Well, that's what <laughs> that's Gee. that's the argument. So I ended up working with him, I and his group of people, amazing uh, lawyers. Um, I work with some of the b- biggest um, PhD elephant scientists in the world, from uh, Dr. Joyce Poole, Cynthia Moss, Lucy Bates, uh, Dick Byrne, and Karen McComb. And uh, collected their affidavits for this case, and then I also provided the video evidence. So I was in uh, a big part of that. W- a big part of the pro- of my project was collecting all the video evidence uh, to go along with the behaviors that the scientists had identified in their affidavits. So
0: great. Well, yeah. Debbie, you're involved in so much work <laughs> and so much really good work. And just keep us posted about when your angel project goes live, and Absolutely. we will certainly promote that on our. Facebook page and on our web page so um, let's see what time do we have we don't have any time so we're going to wrap <laughs> it up so we're going to put your website on our Facebook page Great. so people can get in touch with your organization and with you yes. so thank you so much Debbie Ethel for joining us mm-hmm. on Voices for the Animals thank on you. KBOO Portland a link to the CODA Foundation as I said will be posted on our page uh, see Debbie and a host of other elephant experts from around the world along with stunning photo presentations and illuminating films at the International Free the Elephants Conference and Film Festival in Portland at the University Place Hotel and Conference Center on the PSU campus, April 27th through the 29th. Register at FreeTheElephants.org. Free that link will also be on our KBOO website. You can listen to a podcast of this program on KBOO.FM.
1: This program was produced at KBOO Community Radio in Portland, Oregon. More audio is available online at KBOO.FM. Oh, what a
0: world! KBOO 90.7. That's T
1: Good morning and happy holidays, and welcome to Film at 11 here on your community radio, KBO Portland. This week, Matthew of KBOO's bedtime story
0: show, Gremlin Time, analyzes the seasonally appropriate
1: The Bishop's Wife, and Jeff Godsell reflects on The Remains of the Day. But first, here's a whirlwind tour of some recent releases. There is something grotesque going on in movies lately, and surprisingly, it's happening during the holiday rush of feel-good Enterprises. Take the action comedy Violent
0: Night from Amazon.